All right, we are back. And talking about the monarch butterflies, which we were before the break, we should mention that um, at the root of this problem with the lack of milkweed lies the Monsanto Corporation. Monsanto has been described as a threat to public health and the environment. I'm sure a lot of you remember going to Disneyland back in the day where Monsanto sponsored one of the uh, exhibits in Tomorrowland with their motto, Better Living Through Chemistry. Let's take a moment, though, to quote from a piece from Educate by Kevin Zeese and Margaret Flowers, which noted that Monsanto pushes poisonous chemicals into the environment and promotes agricultural practices that exacerbate climate change. They note that Monsanto's products increase the use of fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, water, and energy at a time when the world needs to be making a transition away from these things. They note that Monsanto began as a chemical company in 1901. In the 1930s, it was responsible for some of the most damaging chemicals in our history. These included the poisons PCBs and dioxin. Reportedly, a single Monsanto plant in Illinois produced 99% of the world's PCBs in, back in 1976. They are carcinogenic and harmful to multiple organs and organ systems. They're still illegally dumped into waterways where they accumulate in fish and other aquatic organisms, which then enter the human food supply. Dioxin was better known to you as the defoliant used in the Vietnam War, Agent Orange. It's one of the most dangerous chemicals known, a highly toxic carcinogen. Currently, Monsanto's biggest selling chemical worldwide is the herbicide glyphosate, sold under the name Roundup. Roundup markets it as a safe herbicide. Sales of it and other glyphosate-released herbicides accounted for 27% of Monsanto's total sales in 2011. As we've talked about in this program before, thanks to genetically modified organisms, Monsanto engineers were able to put Roundup resistance into seeds, including corn. This is good for the company in a lot of ways. First of all, they were able to gain a monopoly over seeds claiming that you must buy their patented product from them every year and cannot reuse anything that you've saved over from the previous year, which is itself a uh, reversal of practices going back to the dawn of agriculture. But it also meant they could sell a lot more Roundup. Back in the day, farmers were reluctant to use a lot of Roundup for fear of killing their own plants. But after putting the resistance into the uh, food crop, they could then spray it in massive amounts, often from planes as we've talked about in this program before, and as was inevitable based on biology, this would then induce resistance and produce superweeds. This is now happening. Not that Monsanto's taking responsibility for any of its impacts. It never does, according to Kevin Zeese and Margaret Flowers. But they also spend a lot of PR money to make sure that they don't get a bad press. For example, in 2011, Monsanto acquired Biologics, a company dedicated to restoring the health of the bee populations amid scientific and media speculation that pesticides were to blame for the dwindling bee populations. Now, I got to tell you, I've never used Roundup in my life, and I have no intention of starting. And I think, dear listener, you might want to consider boycotting that product. 
Something else we've supported on this program is the labeling of GMO products in foods. Here in America, we have a legal system that protects the corporations from having to label their products as containing GMOs. This is not the case in Europe where there is quite a bit more resistance to these products than there is here in the United States. The writers of the article noted the first step in stopping the entrenchment of genetically modified foods in our food supply is labeling. It's a big story. We're going to continue to follow it. And it may be about time we did a follow-up on our talk with Ignacio Chapella, the UC Berkeley professor that revealed that there had been an escape of genetically modified uh, genetics into the wild varieties of uh, corn that appear in rural Mexico. By way of review, we'd note that back in 2001, when biologists David Quist and Ignacio Chapella reported finding transgenes from GM corn in traditional varieties of Oaxacan Mexican corn, they faced a barrage of criticism over their techniques. Nature, which had published the research, eventually disowned their paper, but a second study by different researchers subsequently verified that what Quist and Chapella were claiming was true. Elena Alvarez Buya of the National Autonomous University in Mexico City found transgenes in about 1% of the 2,000 samples they took from the region. This study was co-authored by Paul Gepps here at University of California, Davis, who noted that uh, regarding these transgenes, they're out there, but it's hit and miss. We absolutely do need to follow this story, and we will continue to do so. Chris, we also would cite a piece in the Sacramento Bee from November 9th of last year, noting that science aside, it pays to be GMO-free. Piece by Edward Ortiz notes that studies found, it no, found no difference between GMO and other foods, but the market for non-GMOs was there. Now, earlier last year, a study done at UC Davis showed that um, there was no significant difference between genetically engineered animal feed and traditional products, but that sort of misses the point. Even assuming the food itself is identical, it's the process that creates the food where all the problems seem to reside. But let's follow up at this point, as promised, on another agricultural story, that of water use. But uh, before we continue our discussion of water use and misuse in California, I want to take a slight detour into an, a, a letter to the editor. This is to the Sacramento Bee, written by Michael J. Singer, Professor Emeritus of Soil Science at UC Davis. Said Professor Singer, Regarding antibiotic found in dirt kills some resistant bugs, January 8th, the article was most interesting, but old news. Selman Waxman, a soil microbiologist at Rutgers University, received the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1952 for his isolation of antibiotics from soil. Note the use of the word soil, not dirt. Waxman first isolated actinomycin in 1940 followed by streptomycin and neomycin. The work continues today by microbiologists and soil scientists. Indeed, the Food and Agricultural Organization has declared 2015 to be the International Year of Soils, and Sacramento is fortunate to have a soil science exhibit at the California Museum. Soil is a vital resource that we should protect and use wisely. We should not treat soil as dirt. I want to compliment one of the public affairs programs I heard earlier this week here on KDVS talking about soil and how to make better quality soils and how the bacteria associated with compost were a very important part of creating healthy soils. A phrase I remember from my undergraduate days at Davis was cation exchange capacity, which referred to various compounds in soil that made it more fertile. 
It turns out that organic material has a tremendous capacity to store and release these cations, which is why, dear listener, you should be composting if you're not. But I digress. Let's get back to talking about alfalfa using up uh, prodigious amounts of water. I was asked what the source was on this piece we were quoting on last week's program, and it comes from On Earth, which is the publication of the Sierra Club. This, This dates back to winter of 2002. And I'm going to quote extensively from it again today. The author of the piece was Dwight Holing, H-O-L-I-N-G, and said, Mr. Holing, California's deserts are like dreams. Scorching temperatures, lack of rain, and lunar-like landscapes help conjure up images as eerie and ephemeral as something from the subconscious. A sand dune takes on the appearance of a snowdrift. An oasis floats on the horizon, ever so realistic, ever out of reach. But of all these surrealistic scenes, surely the most bizarre is a dusty desert valley, half the size of Rhode Island, tilled and planted and green as a Wisconsin farm. It's no Fata Morgana, but the tangible result of government subsidies crying out for reform. The Imperial Valley is a 500,000-acre stretch of desert farmland that lies along California's border with Mexico. Calling the weather here extreme is like calling the Arctic chilly. Summer temperatures can reach 120 Rainfall is three inches per year, on par with the Sahara. Yet despite its climate, the Imperial Valley is one of the top 10 agricultural counties in the country. Among other crops, it produces alfalfa, which uses more water per acre than almost any other crop. A quarter of the state's annual 7 million tons of alfalfa is grown right here, in a place where the native plants are creosote and prickly pear cactus. Why? An abundance of cheap water in a state with little despair. Peace quotes Tom Ellis, chair of the California Alfalfa and Forage Association, is saying, if I lost that water, I'd have to drill my own wells. That would be ridiculous. It's too expensive. Turns out Ellis's 750 acres of alfalfa are much wetter than the Imperial Valley, but even for him, subsidized water makes the difference. Many California farmers buy water for 10% of its full cost. City dwellers in Southern California and San Francisco pay $168 to $364 per acre foot. Imperial Valley farmers pay an average price of $14 per acre foot. The water is so cheap that most alfalfa in the state isn't even farmed using water conservation techniques. It's irrigated by field flooding, one of the most wasteful methods which loses 20 to 30% of the water to evaporation. Peace notes that California's discount agricultural water is the legacy of a century-old federal subsidy program created to help settle the West. That would be the 1902 Reclamation Act. By funding irrigation products and helping small farmers, the law boosted ag production and helped feed the country. But it did so at considerable taxpayer expense, as much as $70 billion between 1902 and 1986. Which brings us to alfalfa a low percentage crop that in some cases wouldn't even be profitable without these water subsidies. Once dried and sold as hay, the utmost it will fetch is $150 per ton. In fact, this crop, which soaks up 25% of irrigation water in California, or 20% of all water used in the state, contributes less than 0.1% of the state's economy. The piece quotes Zeke Grader, executive director of the Pacific Coast Federation, is saying water subsidies for alfalfa farmers smack of welfare. When you have a crop that has to be subsidized and something is wrong. And as environmentalists point out, 
these subsidies are not a victimless crime. The environmental effects of damming, diverting, and overdrawing California's rivers have been profound. In the Central Valley, more than 90% of the wetlands have been destroyed. The loss of habitat has caused steep declines in waterfowl population. Approximately 95% of usable spawning habitat for salmon has been lost. 80% of the state's commercial salmon fishing has been shut down. This is a no-brainer, said NRDC's Barry Nelson. There's not enough water for anybody to be wasting it. The piece noted on the other side of this argument is the agricultural industry, fighting not only to hold on to its subsidies, but to add to the state's plumbing system. This is written in 2002, but Jerry Brown and others are still at it with their twin tunnels. The piece goes on to say that farmers and some agronomists see alfalfa as the base of a food chain that includes beef, lamb, and the state's $4.5 billion dairy industry. They quoted Dan Putnam, an agronomist at UC Davis, as saying, if alfalfa goes, so goes the dairy industry. Alfalfa is ice cream in the making, leather in your shoes, the wool in your sweaters. It all starts with alfalfa. Mention higher water prices, said the piece, and Ellis Wax is almost apocalyptic. It will lead to decreased production and increased costs. The consumer will end up paying, if not in price increase, then in availability. He warns that America could run the risk of pushing more and more of its food production offshore. Asking, do we want to be dependent on a foreign source of food like we are for our oil? The country could find itself in a folly if it isn't careful. The piece noted dryly that some disagree. In a 1998 report, economist David Sundig of UC Berkeley and a colleague, Georgina Moreno, demonstrated that forage costs are a small percentage of total milk production costs. Sundig concluded that a 10% reduction in alfalfa production would increase milk prices less than 1%. And I'm sure some of you are wondering if this 2002 piece is still accurate 13 years later. Well, we'd refer you to an article in the opinion page of the New York Times by James McWilliams on this very topic from March 7th of last year. This came in response to an expose in Mother Jones about uh, how much water is needed to produce California's agricultural products. James McWilliams' piece asks, who knew that it took 5.4 gallons to produce a head of broccoli, 3.3 gallons to grow a single tomato? And although the piece doesn't refer to this, we quoted the accurate figure. We quoted the figure earlier that it takes 1.1 gallons of water to produce an almond. Noted McWilliams, for those truly interested in lowering their water footprint, these numbers pale next to the water required to fatten livestock. A 2012 study in the journal Ecosystems tells the story. Beef turns out to have an overall water footprint of roughly 4 million gallons per ton of meat produced. By contrast, the water footprint for sugar crops like beets is about 52,000 gallons per ton. For vegetables, 85,000 gallons per ton. After saying all that, the piece notes that there's one single plant that's leading California's water consumption. Alfalfa. Grown on over a million acres, alfalfa sucks up more water than any crop in the state. And it has one primary destination, cattle. Increasingly, popular grass-fed beef operations typically rely on alfalfa as a supplement to pasture grass. Well, I guess this is part of the law of unintended consequences. We've uh, railed on this show about how important it is to try and have grass-fed beef instead of corn-fed beef. But, uh, well, (laughs) looks like the grass-fed beef isn't as uh, green as we might have hoped. 
The opinion piece notes that if Californians were eating all the beef they produced, one might write off alfalfa's water footprint as the cost of nurturing the local food system. But that's not what's happening. Californians are sending their alfalfa, and thus their water, to Asia. The reason? It's more profitable to ship alfalfa hay from California to China than from the Imperial Valley to the Central Valley. Alfalfa growers are now exporting 100 billion gallons of water a year from our drought-ridden state to the other side of the world in the form of alfalfa. Well, what can you do about this? Well, one thing you might want to consider is uh, changing your diet, replacing 50% of animal products with edible plants like legumes, nuts, and tubers. That would result in a 30% reduction in an individual's food-related water footprint. If you go vegetarian, it would reduce the water footprint by almost 60%. And as cited on this program previously, but not in this editorial piece, it turns out that beef, for some reason, is a lot more water-intensive than pork or chicken or other meats. Thus, it may be time to consider giving up beef. And to round out this discussion, let's cite another piece from Mother Jones. In fact, from Monday of this week, article by Tom Philpott titled, Invasion of the Hedge Fund Almonds. Turns out that the value of California almonds hit $4.8 billion in 2012. That's triple the level of a decade earlier. In fact, almonds, along with California-grown pistachios and walnuts, are becoming so lucrative that big investment funds are snapping up land and dropping in trees. The article has some of its own stats. There's more water embedded in four almonds than in a head of lettuce. And since almond orchards require a third more water per acre than grape vineyards, you might be surprised to note that in spite of our drought here in California, the state's farmers bought at least 8.3 million young almond trees between July of 2013 and July of last year. A quarter of those went to replace old orchards, but most were new plantings. 48,000 acres worth, an area equal to three Manhattans. Oh, and by the way, to irrigate all of these uh, almond trees, people are sinking wells. They're sinking wells everywhere. Notes the article, in California, landowners can drop a well wherever they want, unimpeded by the state. Some counties require permits for the wells, but they're easy to get. As the State Water Resources Control Board put it in its website, to get the right to groundwater, you simply extract the water and use it for a beneficial purpose. And extract they do. Central Valley farmers have for years been drawing down groundwater at an alarming rate. Between 2003 and 2010, seven-year period, the valley's aquifers lost 20 cubic kilometers of groundwater, enough to meet the household needs of New York City for 11 years. Then came our current drought, which started in 2011. Suddenly, the region's groundwater was being pumped at an estimated rate of nearly seven cubic kilometers per year. That's the same amount of water that everyone in Texas uses at home annually. Well, how much is left in our aquifers, you ask? Well, it turns out that nobody knows, mainly because our state's lax regulation means no one keeps track. Oh, and by the way, like alfalfa, nearly 70% of California's almond crop is exported, with China the leading customer. And here's a shocker. Almonds now rank as the number one U.S. specialty crop export, which beats wine by a count of 3.4 billion to 1.3 billion. And it's not just family farms, as you might imagine, that are reaping part of this windfall. According to the Almond Board of California, 72% of the state's 6,500 almond farms are owned by families, and half of them are smaller than 50 acres. 
But massive financial interests, banks, pension funds, investment arms of insurance companies are moving rapidly into the nut trade. Take TIAA CREF, a New York-based retirement investment fund with nearly a half trillion dollars in total assets. That firm owns 37,000 acres of California farmland and claims to be one of the globe's top five almond producers. Then there's Hancock Agricultural Investment Group, a subsidiary of the sprawling Canadian insurance and financial services giant Manulife Financial. It manages $2.1 billion worth of farmland, mainly for large institutional investors like pension funds. And you may be curious to know that California's largest nut grower is not an insurance conglomerate or, well, it's not exactly a family operation either. It's Paramount Farms, owned by the Beverly Hills magnates Stewart and Linda Resnick. The Resnicks have made quite an effort to retain private control over the water interests in the San Joaquin Valley. They previously turned uh, island water, Fiji water that is, and pomegranate juice, Palm Wonderful, into um, ubiquitous products, amassing a $4 billion fortune in the process. They've more recently turned their attention to pistachios, hiring the Korean rapper and alleged comedian Steve Colbert to push pistachios. Of course, one reason for this is that as you pump the water out of the ground, some of the more stagnant aquifer water down there is more contaminated with things like arsenic and salts. And pistachios are more tolerant of such salts. So that's one reason we're planting more pistachios. And finally, we have to talk about groundwater pumping, but I think we're running out of time. We've gone on about this a bit, but next week's program, we'll take up where we left off and talk about what's being done with all of this extraction of deeper and deeper wells, just pumping water out like there's no tomorrow, and someday there will be no tomorrow. In closing, I don't don't want to claim that our legislature's done nothing about this. Last summer, they passed uh, some laws that would... (laughs) ordered the state's watershed districts to create a framework for regulating groundwater. Of course, the rules don't go into effect for six years. And after requiring districts to submit sustainability plans by 2020, they have 20 additional years to, quote, prevent significant and unreasonable depletion of supply, which, of course, is not very clearly defined. And I think if you're not horrified by some of this, dear listener, we haven't explained it well enough, but we'll be doing more of it in the future. But let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax.